in John chapter 2, verses, we'll start with 13 through 17. It says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So we're, we're to this place in scripture and it, it, it's so funny how this lines up. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like this is the passage, you know, right before Christmas. Um, but I, I feel like this is such an important passage for us today. I really do. I think it's critical actually. Um, and as we look at what's going on here, Jews had come from all over the known world to Jerusalem, making this pilgrimage to, to celebrate Passover. And this was a huge celebration. I mean, they're celebrating their rescue from Egypt by God. And so this is that big uh, celebration moment. And, and when people would arrive to celebrate Passover, they would go to as they entered Jerusalem, they, the first destination that they would go to was the temple. They would go there and then they would pay uh, the tax and then offer a sacrifice in worship to God. Now, Jesus goes, uh, as he's observing this, as he's there to, to celebrate as well, he arrives at the temple and what he sees is the opposite of worship. There's merchants all over the place. They're selling oxen, sheep, pigeons. And then there's money changers that are seated all throughout. And, and, and I think it's important for us to kind of have an understanding of why this is taking place. See, it was very impractical for people traveling from great distances all throughout the known world to come and then also along that journey bring their own animals to sacrifice. That was really difficult. So... Because of that difficulty, uh, these merchants would sell these people that had traveled a great distance, they would sell them the animal that they needed uh, for their sacrifice. A pretty convenient thing, right? And then the money changers were important because every Jewish male 20 years of age or older had to pay this annual temple tax. But this tax could only be paid through a specific type of coin. It was called a, a Tyrian coin or shekel. And, and this was a specific coin uh, that was set apart because of its purity uh, from its silver content, okay? So it was a special coin. And so people would go and they couldn't just like, you know, pay this temple tax with their own money. They had to convert it to this Tyrian coin, and so these money uh, changers were there and they would exchange that and then they would, on top of that, charge upwards of 12%. And so this is all going on uh, as Jesus walks in into the scene here and this historically, this opportunity, this, this, this place where business was happening, this used to be across the valley, the Kidron Valley, up on the slope of the Mount of Olives. So it originally was something that was done far away from the temple, but now it's in the temple. 
what had begun as a service to those desiring to worship God had deteriorated into exploitation, usury, and even in a separate account of Jesus cleansing the temple uh, again later on in his life, he says, you have turned the house of prayer into a den of robbers. But you guys, we have to acknowledge like the intent, the heart in this original design of providing a way for people to sacrifice, to worship, it was a pretty good idea, right? Made it very convenient for them and, and, and allowed them to participate, allowed them to travel a long journey and, and sacrifice, uh, you know, without having to deal with all of that along the way. And, and, and so we see what once was a great idea, a God idea, has now deteriorated into something that was actually in opposition to worship. So something that was designed to enhance worship is now the very thing that is taken away from worship. This is something we have to listen to. We have to, we have to pay attention to because, you guys, there's a lot of great ideas. There's a lot of things that, that we um, had come to our mind that were, that were great, that, that we would even say, man, God, thank you for leading me in that. Thank you for, for bringing that about. But if we're not careful if we don't pay attention to how that develops, all of a sudden the very thing that was a great thing, a God thing, can become the actual thing that holds you back from God. You know, it's interesting. I was watching this documentary on, it was a documentary on social media, and they had all of these engineers and tech guys that were very instrumental uh, when these social media platforms uh, developed and really took off. And what they were sharing was their heart behind these different features that they had designed and put into these, these social media uh, accounts. And, 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 and they, they were options that in their mind would help people connect and help people love each other to a greater degree. And what they were sharing was how the very thing that they, in their mind, they designed, created with the intent for good was now the very thing that was being used to divide. And they were just sharing about that. And, and, and it was so sad to think about something that when you hear them say the heart, the intent behind it, you go, man, that's a great idea. That's a great thing. And now that very thing is being used for evil. You guys, the condition of the temple was a reflection of the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. And as Jesus surveyed these sacred temple grounds, he's absolutely appalled. He is outraged at what he sees. This, this atmosphere of worship, of, of people crying out in prayer to God that, that he should have been hearing and, and seeing, that's completely absent. What, what he's seen is he's seen animals, he's seen bartering, he's, seen, he's hearing these noises, these smells, and it is, it's not worship. And realizing that the purity of temple worship was about honoring God, Jesus takes immediate action. He makes a whip and he drives out the businessmen and their livestock. And, it, and it's interesting, whenever we teach on this passage, there's, there's two sides that people land on. They either go, that's my Jesus. Or they go, how could he? That's not my Jesus. But here's the reality, like how, if God is love, how can Jesus, who is God, be angry here? You guys, you need to 
to understand and know something, genuine love is sometimes demonstrated by anger. Now, what I'm not saying is abuse. I'm not saying an out of control anger. Okay, those things are not the type of, that's not the type of anger we're talking about. What we're talking about is a God kind of anger. And what we see Jesus demonstrate is an anger because of how much he cares, because of how much he loves not only the people, but ultimately his father, God. And so he sees what they're doing and and it's not even what they're doing to him, right? Like, Like he walks in, and he sees this happening. They're not attacking him. They're not like, let's put him on the cross right now. No, what they're doing is dishonoring God. The very temple, the very place that was built to glorify him. And Jesus sees this and his anger demonstrates his love for the father. Guys, we have to get to a place where, see, because anger in us, there's, there's two ways. Now, what we see here is God's kind of anger is called a righteous anger. Righteous anger in our lives, when that's manifested, is I'm angry because of what you or that thing did to God, not me, right? So so a righteous anger means I'm upset at that, I'm angry at that because of what it does to God. A non-righteous anger is I'm upset at you because of what you did to me. I'm upset because... You're in opposition to me. Whereas Jesus has a righteous anger because it's about God. Jesus is in absolute control of his emotions. He's in control of his actions and he displays this anger without sinning. And he says to them, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now, referencing God as his father, it was a reminder of his deity and his messiahship. He was the loyal son purging his father's house of its impure worship. Jesus is angry because the Jews have desecrated his father's house. This is a family issue, okay? When you look at what Jesus is doing here, it's interesting how family brings about uh, a protector instinct in you like nothing else, amen? It's like, you can do something to them, but you touch my child, you and I are gonna go outside. You can do that, but you talk that way to them, my wife, we got problems, right? There's just something about family. There's something about that. And even family members, I found this with my little brother. Uh, my little brother and I in, in high school, man, he, he and I were so different and I was just an absolute There's no other way to say it. I was a jerk to him. Uh, He was a freshman. I was a senior. I felt like it was my right as a human. uh, And I was like that to him. And, And, but I remember one time he was being bullied and I went into protect him mode. And it even shocked me because I was like, I don't even like him. Why am I protecting him? But there's something about family. Jesus says, this is my father's house. You are desecrating my father's house. I'm not dealing with that. That's not happening. And and, and you look at you guys like, why is he so angry? When the first temple was dedicated to God by King Solomon, we read in 1 Kings 8, verse 13, where Solomon says, I have indeed built you an exalted house 
a place for you to dwell in forever. That's what Solomon said to God as he's dedicating this temple. And in two verses before that, we see that the glory of God filled that temple. So God, this is your house. This is for you to dwell. This is for your glory to be filled. And, and, and what we see is God's not confined to a temple, but the temple was a special place, a set-aside place where he would meet with humanity. They come to worship him. Sacrifices were offered to him there. This house was built to display his glory, and yet the holiness and the depth of worship had been lost. People had forgotten why they'd come to the temple in the first place. What once was something special, which what once was an opportunity to worship, to sacrifice, was now just something each year, or, or we, we, we just go back and we do this as a family. It's a fun celebration, something we do. Um, the feast is amazing. And hey, we gotta stop in really quick, exchange some money, pay our tax, and we gotta sacrifice some animals because you know what you did, and, and then we'll keep going, right? It was another thing. It was a routine. It had lost its significance to the people. Like, this is going on, guys. Like, like business can't happen if people aren't engaging in it, right? Supply and demand. And so it's, it's, it's much larger of an issue than just these individuals who are selling, who are exchanging. It's a reflection of everybody right now, the culture, the landscape of people's view of God. And so, and so when, we, when we look at what, what's gone on, you guys, like, I think one of the things we got to ask ourselves is, have we gotten ourselves into the rut of church is just something I do? It's, it, it's, a, it's a good add-on. It's something I'm supposed to do. Prayer's great. Worship's good if I like the songs. I hope the verses he's preaching on are, are good. Like, 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 you know, and, 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 yep, I got it. And very quickly, the very thing that you crawled to, that you, that you had to cling to because you love Jesus so much, that very thing where there was no doubt that your heart was all about him, all of a sudden, it's not there anymore. All of a sudden, it's kind of distant. And guys, it happens so quickly. And just like them, we find ourselves there substituting things that have no business being a part of our worship. And, and we see here also, unlike uh, the other temple cleansing event in Matthew chapter 21, uh, towards the end of Jesus's life, where he focuses on them ripping people off, here, what's very interesting is the focus is not on how they're doing business. The focus is on where they're doing business. See, they've set up shop in the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles. This was interfering. What they were doing, it was interfering with Gentiles coming to worship the one true God. The very place where Jews should have been meeting Gentiles and telling them about God. I mean, I just want you to think about it. Like, that's the purpose. When you think about the nation of Israel, God said, I'm gonna use you. You are gonna be a set-apart nation where other people other people groups, other nations are going to see you and you're going to point them to God. It's going to be so noticeably different. I want you to think about Gentiles who are, who are literally saying, I want to have a relationship with God, with the one true God. I'm going to step out of my comfort zone. I'm going to be a part of that. And their first experience, what they walk into is that. 
And you think about Jesus's purpose. I came to seek and to save the lost, he said, right? And so I just want you to imagine as he's coming in to this setting, to this very place where the lost are being met, where these people uh, who were the outsiders, who the design of Israel was to meet that, to, to point to God, the place they go into is the very place that is the opposite of everything he's about. This is Gentile, like they're coming in looking for truth. There it is. And they see a swap meet. You know, uh, Kent Hughes wrote this. He said, the way we worship reveals what we think about God. See, Jesus thought correctly about God. He perfectly understood the holiness, the power, the authority of God. That's why he was so passionate about God's house. If you, if you and I, if we come to worship God each week and all we think about is us, what we like, what we dislike, what we want, what we don't want, what satisfies us, what, what bothers us, there's a problem, you guys. That's when we start to make worship about us and not about him. Guys, we have to come into this place. If you are gonna worship God, you have to make it about him. And in those moments where you're tempted to make it about you, in those moments where, where you're like, oh, I'm not really feeling that song, you've got to redirect your heart, your mind. In those moments where you're like, I'm not feeling what Steve's saying, you've got to redirect your heart, your mind. If you're not feeling what I'm saying, just look down at your Bible, start reading it. Because that's the unfiltered version. This is filtered. Okay? And, 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 but our purpose here, our purpose in doing this is to worship God, is to point people to God. And so when I come here, I, there's a temptation for me to take it and to hijack it and go, what does this do for me? And, and, and that's not the kind of worship God has called us into, okay? And so, and so we have to continue to guard against that mindset, that attitude, because God's people are in awe of him, worshiping him. And so what happens here has to be done to the glory of, of him. Coming to God requires, by faith, us to turn from self-worship to true worship. And Jesus' actions as he's doing this causes his disciples to remember what David said, this messianic statement when, when David uh, is speaking, and he's also talking about the future Messiah in Psalm 69.9, when he says, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And, and where David is crying out in despair, he's crying out in despair because of those who oppose him. And the major issue that he's dealing with is these opponents of his, uh, their, their problem is they're not understanding his commitment to the temple. They're not understanding how passionate he is about that. They're not understanding how important it is. And just as David was consumed with zeal for the temple, so too would be the greater David, the Messiah. See, Jesus' anger at the abuse of the temple not only demonstrated his commitment to the Father, but it also demonstrated that he was the promised Messiah. And just like we read in Psalm 69.9, uh, where we see that, that, that David suffered as a result, Jesus suffered as a result of this, feeling uh, the, the pain when the Father was dishonored. The second part of, of verse 9 there, what did it say? It said, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. 
What an accurate statement of Jesus. That the reproaches of those who reproached you, that fell on me. Guys, we fell on Jesus. We did. But he took that. In John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the Jewish leaders, they want a miraculous sign as proof for his authority to do what he just did. I mean, he caused the commotion. They come in and these Jewish leaders, they had the right or the authority as the um, protectors of the faith. They were the ones, the guardians who, who had the right to question anybody that would declare or claim to be a prophet. And, the, and so they, they see him exert this authority and they say, hey, show us a miraculous sign that proves that you have the authority to do what you just did. Now, we know that this demand in and of itself is foolish because the very act of him cleansing the temple was a sign that he's the Messiah, that God's got a message for them. But it's also interesting because their question to him it ignores whether Jesus is just in doing what he's just done. Okay, did you catch that? It's really interesting how they ask this because what they, they challenged his right to do what they did, but they didn't arrest him for it. And I find that really fascinating because, you know, if, if it's my business, and, and this guy has just destroyed my business. And, and, and this was a major, uh, a major money-making thing. And all this happens, and they cause chaos. Guess what? Arrest him. Arrest that guy. But we see something different here when it comes to Jesus. We, we, don't, we, don't, see them, we don't see them saying, hey, take him out. And, and why would they not say that? Well, the only reason that I know I wouldn't say that is Maybe because there's just an actual reason that he's justified in doing what he just did. See, they knew what they were doing wasn't right. I mean, they knew it. But you, but you guys, when you habitually do something over time, guess what? Your heart goes calloused to it. You don't even see it anymore. You don't even notice it anymore. And, and we see over time they've done that, and we know how they did it because of their response, right? When, when he comes in and calls them out and does what he does there, there is no self-examination. Do you notice that? Okay, what's their immediate response? What gives you the right to do that and say that to me? Uh-oh. Guys, that's us. That's us. Right? Something in our life, and, and God reveals something, convicts us, speaks. And you know what? Sad to say, a lot of times, and I'm just as guilty as anybody, and I may not directly say that, but you know what I'm thinking? And maybe he does it through somebody else, is maybe I'm thinking, what gives you a right? You don't have the right. I know who you are. I know what you said. I know what you're about. I know what, about your past. 
And we go into defense mode as opposed to actually asking the question, is there something I need to receive from this? Guys, whenever God speaks, the temptation is to either question the authority of where it's coming from or to pawn it off and go, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this. I'm gonna message them, right? What's hard is to actually go, this is for me. I need to hear this. I need to receive this and I need to ask, is there something in my life and in my heart right now that is not aligning with God's intent for my life? And I see that, you know, all throughout, but we also see it right here in their response. Because one, they don't, they don't say, Jesus, you're wrong. They don't say that at all. They ask, by what authority? In other words, oh no, hey, but what, what authority do you have to tell me about my life? Okay, guys, I've seen that conversation many, many times. And the moment we try to avoid those times when God wants to confront something in our heart, we're the ones that miss out. Guys, Jesus was demonstrating a sign of his Messiahship, and because it was getting uncomfortable, convicting, they ran from it, right? They avoided it. They said, oh, you show us a miraculous sign. Then we'll, like, we'll look at this. But you guys, we also see, even in how they respond, they know Jesus is different. They know it. They've heard the rumors. They know something is different about him. They give him an opportunity to speak, and, and there's, there's just something about the authority in what he did. Who does what he just did? Guys, all throughout Jesus' life, what's, what you see commented from people listening to his messages is they marveled at the authority in how he acted and what he said. The authority. When you look at, in, um, as the gospel explode on, on the scene in the book of Acts, you see over and over again, it commented the authority in how they spoke. So there was something different that they could not deny that Jesus brought to the table as he overturned the tables that they said, we gotta let him speak. Something's different. So Jesus offers them a sign, even though he's already given them a sign. He says, hey, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Now, it's important to note this temple he's talking about, this is not Solomon's temple, which the Babylonians had destroyed. This was the, the temple that was rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity that we read about in the Old Testament. So, and then, and then many centuries after that, in about 20 BC, Herod the Great starts this massive expansion, reconstruction of that very temple. And they're like, hey, uh, it's been 46 years and it still wasn't finished because it didn't finish till um, a little before 70 AD. And so they're like, hey, it's been 46 years and temple's still not built. You're gonna rebuild it in three days? And they're not the only ones just shocked and like, okay, he's lost it. His disciples, they say they didn't get it. His, his closest followers are there. I don't know if you've ever been with one of your friends and they say something and you look at them like, what? What are you talking about? So his disciples, they're thinking the same thing. What did you just say? Tear this thing down and you can could, you could rebuild it in three days? What are we doing following you? 
right? They're, 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 they're looking at this and they don't understand. They're shocked at his reply. And, and we even see this very statement taken and used and twisted against him when he's put on trial and they're trying to put him to death a few years later. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 61, where Jesus is on trial, it says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Right, they just, they just changed one word. They just twisted it, right? Instead of how he said you, they said, he said, I can destroy the temple. And they falsely accuse him. And we see even later, as he's on the cross, people are mocking him. And one of the things they mock him with is they say, you who would destroy the temple and raise it again in three days, why don't you get yourself off the cross? They mocked him. But as we read, John here is, is telling us that Jesus was actually referring to his body. Jesus, whose God has come to humanity in a new, far greater way than in the temple. And, and guys, that's what we're about to celebrate here when you think about Christmas. It's his arrival. He is here. He has come. And so the sign that, was, that, was, uh, that he was talking about was going to take place after the Jewish leaders had torn down his body, but he was going to raise it up again in three days. The resurrection is the ultimate sign of his authority. It's the ultimate sign. And, 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 and once again, the disciples don't fully understand until when, it says. They understood after the resurrection. That's when they go, oh, wait a second. He said this. This is that. And, 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 and Jesus knew, hey, they're going to have problems remembering all I'm saying. So that's why he said in John 14, 26, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to help you, who's going to bring to your mind the things that I said to you. I'll thank God for that. And so, and so we see, uh, you know, that they start to realize who he is and his death as the sacrificial lamb would make the Jerusalem temple obsolete and his resurrection would lay the foundation for a new spiritual temple, the church. What they were mocking him for at his death was the very thing they should have been praising him for. And then, and then we finish in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2 where it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus remained in Jerusalem. Once again, they didn't chain him up, take him out. He's there enjoying Passover feast. And during that time, he performed other miracles that aren't recorded in scripture. Now, every time I read that, I go, I wonder what they were. Like, I'm just like, what did he do? And I can't wait to ask him. But he does these other miracles and, and, and everything we read here, we go, oh yes, yes, he's doing miracles. And we even see what? Many believed in his name. I wish it ended right there. It doesn't. There's a, there's a but. The faith was superficial and it was disingenuous. 
See, it wasn't true saving faith. Just as John's word usage indicates here, because the, the word believed in verse 23 and entrusting in verse 24, they both come from the same Greek verb. And so though they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. He had no faith in their faith. Now we go, wait, why? What, what in the world? Why? Because Although they claimed to believe, Jesus knew that it was just this intellectual acceptance, and that proves nothing. Just to believe that he's real or, or that he's powerful, like, like guys, that, that doesn't do anything. In fact, we know that the, that the demons believe that. In James chapter 2, verse 19, look what it says. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So he's seen that they're saying, oh, we believe, but he's seen something else in them. Although many claimed to believe, Jesus knew that that intellectual acceptance, it did not prove it. Just as in John 13, 20 and 21, it talks about in the parable of the sower who's planting seeds and he says, what? Some of those seeds fell on the rocks. Well, what's wrong with the rocks? Well, guess what? He's describing the people that, and he even says, they receive it with joy, right? In other words, it's this emotional, exciting experience when they receive Jesus, but it's on the rocks. It never took root. Uh, they never fully understood what they were believing. They never made him Lord and Savior of their life. And so when challenges came, or even when success came, guess what? They're done. They abandoned it. It's not worth it. Guys, if there's one thing COVID's done, man, it has shown us if our seeds were planted in the rocks or not. It's shown, it's shown the reality, the genuineness of our faith. And it's been tough. And certain things you've seen in yourself have been ugly. But man, I pray that you see a genuineness in your faith, even in that. Guys, their, their hearts were never truly changed. They fell away. It was one thing to respond to a miracle, but quite something else to repent and commit their lives to Jesus and continue in his word. That's why in John chapter eight, verses 30 and 31, it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. I am so excited that you believe. Now you need to abide in my word. Okay, you need to follow me. Okay, you, may, you need to make that decision, right? It's not just acknowledging and believing, wow, that's an incredible miracle. That's, that's amazing, but it's actually receiving and believing. It's making him Lord and Savior of my life. And it takes much more than believing in a miracle for a person to be saved. And guys, we see this. I, I know people, I'm thinking of people in my mind and it drives me crazy because I know people that have cried out to God, they've been in the hospital room, no hope, and they told him, you get me out of this, you heal me, I'm all yours. And I've seen this story over and over again where God actually steps in, heals them, or they say, God, change my current situation, get me a job or get me a spouse. And all of a sudden, something happens and, and what they desired to happen happens and, 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 and they are the, they're in the front. Now, I'm not, if you're in the front row, it's okay. I'm not calling you out. <laughs> but they, but they, you're good. They're, they're front and center, right? All in. 
Altar calls, here we go. Everything. Serving all that. But then all of a sudden, oh, awesome. I'm good. I'm good. Guys, that wasn't genuine saving faith. Guys, Jesus did not embrace that false faith. He knew what was in their hearts. Guys, he knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's in our hearts. And and when we look at these passages, as I close our time together, guys, Jesus is establishing a priority of worship. And he's challenging us to not allow ourselves or anything else to get in the way of the worship of God. He is is saying, listen, this is a priority. This is important. Uh, We're talking about my father. We're talking about honor and glorifying him, giving him the worth that he deserves. And so you don't allow yourself, okay? Guys, like some of us, we're allowing ourselves to get in the way of that worship. We're allowing our mind, our thoughts, our disappointments to get in the way of worshiping him. Or we're allowing somebody else or some circumstance to start to get in the way of my pure devotion to God. And he says, listen, stop. Don't let that happen. Remove that. And guys, when you think of anything that's distracting from worship and and, and taking away what God has designed, I even think about like, just even like Christmas. You know, we're doing um, a thrill of hope. The song is, Oh, Holy Night. That's, that's where we got the idea of a thrill of hope, right? Oh, holy night. You guys, I hear people singing these incredible songs that are rich with the gospel, and they're people that want nothing to do with God. But it's acceptable. It's a thing, right? And so we got to be careful that we allow something that was designed to be a worshipful thing. We got to be careful. We got to protect it because there are so many things that can rob and steal from the very intent of God as a way to bring you into worship with him. And I want to close with these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul says this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Guys, Here we go. It's easy to separate. Oh, that temple, uh, we don't have that anymore. Uh Uh-oh. No, wait. Wait a second. You and I are the temple now. We're the temple. In other words, the very thing that was going on in those temple grounds is the very thing that can start to happen in us. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I need a cleansing from Jesus today to remove some of this stuff that he's not okay with? that's impeding in that pure, that heartfelt worship that God deserves. And so guys, there is nothing that should take hold of your heart and your life that is outside of worshiping God. You are the very temple of God. So so you are the house of God. And so as you walk, as you move, as you live, as as you breathe, You have an opportunity with your life to praise him. And guess what? Just as that stuff was going on in the very entry point for people to meet and understand who God is, guys, you are the hands and feet of Jesus out there. You are the first responders. You're that first experience when people come in to the presence of God. I pray it's them meeting you and seeing the worship and seeing your heart and knowing there's something different about you and wanting 
to know who Jesus is as a result of being around you. That's it. So guys, let's move forward. Let's, let's allow him to do what he wants to do in our hearts. Amen? Let's pray.